0: to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Happy Friday, everybody. Um, got a little bit of a, a hodgepodge of an episode here. Got some audio from Dr. Simone Gold from America's Frontline Doctors. And I'm going to play that here in just a second. But I also wanted to comment, of course, on how Project Veritas this week revealed that Facebook, of course, is uh, censoring. Shocking. To no one ever, but they're censoring all of the truth regarding uh, what they're what they're labeling as vaccine hesitancy, and that right there should tell everybody that if you're censoring something, chances are you're hiding the truth. It can't uh, it it can't get any more simple than that. It's not it's not complicated. It should be all the motivation somebody needs to look up more things and figure out more things. So I'm going to go ahead and play these uh, first two audio rigs here. I've got a little, if I can get to it, I'd like to read a little bit out of The Rape of the Mind from Dr. Juice Merlew when it comes to his take on education and the purpose of education. And I agree with him 100%. So I want to read a little excerpt from that book as well. And then I think it's more than appropriate to read uh, the history of Memorial Day. Who created it, when it was created, and what its ultimate purpose is and its point. It is a day of remembrance, clearly, for those who gave up their lives and fought for this country and for the freedoms and independence that we are supposed to have. And that can never never be something that's understated. So first off, here's Dr. Simone Gold. Give this a listen. I have two clips. I'll just play them back to back.
1: months pregnant who came down with COVID-19. 19. two days later she comes back in and she happens to get really really sick and she got admitted to the hospital ultimately she survived but of course she ended up losing the pregnancy they they autopsy even studied everything so the only thing that was found to be abnormal was that the syncytiotrophoblast layer of the placenta which is the layer closest to the mother's side had been extraordinarily inflamed is because these mrna vaccines we don't know if that effect on the syncytiotrophoblast layer of the placenta is going to be a permanent effect or not. But if you were to get it, you could lose a pregnancy. But that's not permanent. You can go and get pregnant again and have a healthy pregnancy. If the syncytiotropoblast inflammation is permanent, which they think it might be with the mRNA vaccine, you've traded a temporary kind of flu illness for lifelong infertility or typical carrier pregnancy. How can you turn this around and give this to young women when you don't know?
0: So there's that. And per usual, she's 100% right. Why on earth would people pump this into their children even while they are experiencing puberty? Even before puberty? So you have to understand that this is really part of the nefarious plan here. Part of the nefarious plan is to hijack the entire natural progression of the human body. And if you can do that at the reproductive level, which this is doing, these jabs are doing, you're hijacking generations of individuals who believe that they will be able to reproduce when perhaps they won't be. Why would a person ever want to take that risk, as she said? Why on earth would you ever put your own child at risk like that? Well, we'll just gamble. We'll just roll the dice. Maybe she's wrong. Yes, that's right. Maybe the doctors who are being censored are wrong. Maybe the doctors that are trying to get life saving drugs that are dirt cheap to your front doorstep, they're the wrong ones. Give me a break. Here's another clip.
1: None of this would have happened if they hadn't been fraudulent in the testing. You all have heard of the PCR test. The PCR test was never supposed to be used for diagnostic purposes. You probably have heard that as well, but it gets less and less accurate. The more times it's cycled, it has something called a cycle threshold. And they keep cycling and cycling and cycling it. And more times they cycle it, the less accurate it gets. Everybody agrees that over 35 cycle threshold, it's useless. How useless? It's like 97% inaccurate. Fauci is on record as saying 35 over 35 cycle threshold captures dead RNA fragments. In other words, it's not a live virus that can infect someone else. A doctor colleague of mine compares it like this. He says, on the one hand, you have a car over here that can drive. And on the other hand, you have all the car parts sitting sprawled around. You've got a tire and you've got accident transmission. You know that's not a drivable car. It's not a car, and it's not drivable. So over 35, you're getting viral particles, and they're usually dead. The New York Times did an article on this, and they said that the testing is about 97% inaccurate. Okay, so over 35. So what number cycle threshold do you think we're using in our nation? So the two biggest uh, commercial labs in our nation are Quest and LabCorp. Quest is using 40. LabCorp is using 38. Most departments of health are using between 40 and 45. This is when everybody agrees that over 35 is inaccurate. Everybody agrees, and then they go along like business as usual, telling you that there's all of these positive cases. Okay. I don't know.
0: Number manipulation is one of the oldest games in the the book. One of the oldest tricks in the book. Not difficult to manipulate numbers. I just, my hat goes off to these individuals for doing this, for educating the American public. They could stay home. They could even make videos and yell about it, like they did well over a year ago, I might add. They were making videos and getting out there and yelling about it. Mainstream media wasn't covering it, because, of course, they're criminals themselves. But now, if you're unaware, and you'd like to at least participate, or you're in the area, Um, The Uncensored Truth Tour from America's Frontline Doctors. I'm going to link um, their entire tour schedule in the description below of this podcast. And uh, they're going a number of different places. In fact, they're going to be very close to me very shortly here in the next week or so. I might dip in. I might dip in. Uh, very, very cool stuff. So, May 26th, they're in Clearwater, Florida. May 29th, they're in Tampa. May 30th, they're in Jupiter, Florida. June 1st, Jacksonville. June 2nd, Atlanta. June 3rd, Birmingham, Alabama. June 4th, Memphis, Tennessee. June 5th and 6th, in Nashville. June 7th, in Louisville, Kentucky. June 8th, in Cincinnati. June 9th, in Indianapolis. June 10th, in Columbus. June 11th. Charlestown, West Virginia, June 12th, Charlotte, North Carolina, and so on and so on and so on. They're hitting a number of different states. Uh, And it's just, it's fantastic. So, again, I'm going to link that schedule and their website again in the description below. So make sure that you uh, check that out if you're interested. Here is a section from The Rape of the Mind by Juice Merleau, which I've read One or two particular, uh, I've read one chapter out of this book thus far, and I've written an article about it on the Substack, and I highly recommend again that you check out this book because, my God, the things that are in here are absolutely incredible. And I just want to read a couple of pages here, and this is chapter 16, and it's titled, Education for Discipline or Higher Morale. And the first subchapter is The Role of Education, and it says the following, quote, The child's formative years are spent under the guidance of first parents and then teachers. Jointly, they influence his behavior. The educational system can either reinforce or correct parental errors and attitudes either strengthen the child's desire to grow toward freedom and maturity or stifle his need to develop and twist it into the need to resign himself to permanent childishness and dependence since the renaissance the ideal of universal scholastic training has made steady gains but today we unwittingly tend to mold minds into the prefabricated pattern and to give out and to give our students the illusion that they know or have to know all the answers. The fallacy of such half-education, and that the so-called alphabetics, in contrast to those who cannot read, may become better followers and worse thinkers. The totalitarians, for example, are not against schools. On the contrary, for the more you overburden the mind with facts, the more passive it may become. Intellectual erudition and book learning alone do not make strong personalities, and in our passion for factual education and the quiz type of examination there lies hidden a form of mental pressure. The awe with which we regard the accumulation of school facts may inhibit the mind so that it cannot think for itself. We must become more aware of the involuntary pressures an educational system can impose on us and their possibly dangerous effects on the future of our democratic society. The actual strategy of keeping people as permanent students under prolonged supervision is a help to totalitarian indoctrination. For instance, somewhere along the line, in some administrative minds, there sprang up the idea that repeated comparative examinations would increase the quality of the core of administrators. Instead, infantile anxieties developed related to the fear of this infantile tool of measurement and evaluation, the examination. There is hardly now an administrator who dares look at reality as the best test of human capacity and human endurance. The form of education which sets a premiere on dependency, which over-controls the child, which makes a moral appeal through punishment and provoking a sense of guilt, which overrates mechanical skills and automatic learning. This form of education needs the brain into a pattern of conformity which can easily be turned into totalitarian channels. This is even more the case in regard to the disciplinary training of soldiers. Such rigid education glorifies good behavior far too much. Imitation and conformity are approved at the expense of spontaneous creativity, thinking for oneself, and the free expression of discussion and dissenting ideas. Our examination mania forces students into mental pathways of automatic thinking. Our intellectual and so-called objective education overrates rationalism and technical know-how under the delusion that this will keep emotional errors under control. What it does instead, of course, is to train children into automatic patterns of thinking and acting, which are closer to the pattern of conditioned reflexes of which Pavlovian students are so fond, that they are to the free, exploratory, creative pattern toward which democratic education should be oriented. Totalitarianism is well aware that youth has a sensitive period during which Pavlovian conditioning may be established without difficulty. Early teachings form nearly indestructible patterns in the child's mind and eventually replace innate instinctual precision. This early Pavlovian automization of life may itself develop almost the force of an innate instinct. Indeed, this is precisely what happens in totalitaria. Dictators especially organize youth and press them to join disciplinary youth movements. The paradox of universal literacy is that it may create a race of men and women who have become, just because of this new intellectual approach to life, much more receptive to the indoctrination of their teachers or leaders. Do we need conditioned adepts or free-thinking students? Beyond this, our technical means of communication have caught up with our literacy. The eye that can read is immediately caught by advertising and propaganda. This is the tremendous dilemma of our epoch. In many of our primary schools, students are taught in an atmosphere of compulsive regimentation and are imprinted with a sense of dependency and awe of authority which lasts throughout their lives. They never really learn to think for themselves. The scholastic fact factories, the schools, keep many pupils too busy to think. They may instead educate them into progressive immaturity. As long as people can quote one another, and the available expert, quote-unquote, opinion, they are considered well-informed and intellectual. Many schools emphasize that we could call a quotation mania, making the ability to quote the epitome of all wisdom. Yet anyone with an apparently unanswerable logic, anyone who can back up his position with authoritative statements and quotations, can have a strong impact on such a mind, for it can readily be caught and conditioned by emotionally attractive pseudo-intellectual currents. As a matter of fact, in the process of brainwashing, the Inquisitor makes use of the feeling of confusion his victims get when he is shown that his facts don't fit and that there are flaws in his concepts. The man who does not know the tricks of argument will break down sooner. Unquote. For those individuals who have been paying attention to the Nelson County School District in Kentucky that has been covered on this podcast extensively and will continue to be covered on this podcast, I hope that what I just read from that book published in 1955 resonates with you because that's what's happening. And it's not just your school district, it's countless school districts. That train of thought, the get them while they're young, the younger the better, mold them into this working machine that doesn't think, doesn't feel, has no instincts, no individuality. That's the goal of the very program that's being implemented within your school district. There are countless programs like it. We've discussed the critical race theory nonsense and the absurdity of that. Again, critical race theory is pretend. And I'm going to spend just one second here on critical race theory, and I may have brought it up in the past. Not only is it fake, because the word theory means unproven, so it's made up. It's actually, And this is something that I'm not hearing anybody discuss when it comes to them yelling about this critical race theory nonsense which, of course, countless states have now outlawed. That right there should tell you all you need to know. But the real reason for critical race theory is to justify an educator or administrator's ignorance on a subject. And then they ultimately end up getting paid to make things up, to just storytell and make up false accusations and then get paid to just relay their feelings. Because as we all know, that's probably one of the easiest things to do and anybody can do it. But if you can get paid to do it in a workplace and everybody in that workplace is in line with you and your feelings and you're just bouncing around back and forth like a pinball machine, absolutely nothing that's real. And you get paid for it, not only are you deceiving yourself, but you're deceiving everyone around you. That's the real reason for cr- things like critical race theory. And again, the totalitarian will just pick something else to do. So when you get rid of quote unquote critical race theory, or you outlaw it, or you ban it, or you do whatever you do, it really won't be going away because the people peddling it will remain. Which means, what will they do next? What false program or ideology will they cling on to next and push it on children and push it on minors and then yell about it that all adults have to agree with them? They'll just pick something else. The problem, again, here is totalitarianism. It is Marxism. It is communism. It is socialism. It's all of these steps in this horrific satanic ladder that lead to nothing but permanent confusion, in particular in the mind of a child who cannot think for themselves or does not come from a home that has individuals in it who think for themselves, then they'll all be duped. All of them will be duped. But just because critical race theory goes away and it is going away, they've already lost the war, which means the people still teaching it are lunatics What will happen is is that those individuals who are still employed there and still doing it, they'll just pick something else to do, something equally as bad, something just as ludicrous. You see, the real problem are the people doing this. It's the brainwashed individuals that are passing this off as being fact. And like Juice Merlue just said, if you get them while they're young, it's game over. Juice Merlue is not against an examination. He's against examinations being the only thing that measures success, or the only thing that measure knowledge. Examinations should exist. A person should take a quiz or a test. But it should never be the only thing. So that right there again should tell people how ludicrous education can be, but also how simple the answer truly is. It does have to be a variety of evaluation methods, but you still have to measure whether or not the individual has picked up on anything or learned anything. That does have to happen. It's the brainwashing that has to be avoided. All right. Last note here. This comes from usmemorialday.org. History of Memorial Day. This isn't something they're going to teach in school with any regularity. So I'm going to read through this very quickly. Here we go. Quote, Memorial Day history. Memorial Day, originally called Decoration Day, there we go, I got it out, is a day of remembrance for those who have died in service of the United States of America. It's difficult to prove the origins of this day as over two dozen towns and cities lay claim to the birthplace. In May 1966, President Lyndon Johnson stepped in and officially declared Waterloo, New York the birthplace of Memorial Day. Lyndon Johnson, dirtbag. For a variety of reasons, of which I'll skip right now. Uh, Next paragraph. Regardless of the location of the origins of the exact date, one thing is crystal clear. Memorial Day was born out of the Civil War, which ended in 1865 and a desire to honor our dead. On the 5th of May, 1868, General John Logan, who was the National Commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, officially proclaimed it in his General Order No. 11. So if someone says, who came up with Memorial Day? The answer is General John Logan, who was the National Commander of the Grand Army of the Republic in May, in the 5th of May in 1868, quote, part of the history of Memorial Day will show that in the order the general proclaimed, quote, the 30th of May 1868 is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion, and those bodies now lie in almost every city, village, and Hamlet Churchyard in the land. Unquote. Because the day wasn't the anniversary of any particular battle, the general called it the date of Decoration Day. On the first Decoration Day, 5,000 participants decorated the graves of 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers buried at Arlington Cemetery, at Arlington Cemetery while General James Garfield made a historic speech. New York was the first state to officially recognize the holiday in 1873. It was recognized by all other northern states by 1890. Differently, the South refused to acknowledge the day and honored their dead on separate days. This went on until after World War I, when the holiday changed from honoring just those who died fighting in the Civil War to honoring Americans who died fighting in any war. With the Congressional passage of the National Holiday Act of 1971, it is now observed on the last Monday in May by almost every state. This helped ensure a three-day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, for federal holidays. In addition, several southern states have an additional separate day for honoring the Confederate War dead. January 19th in Texas, April 26th in Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and Mississippi. May 10th in South Carolina and June 3rd, Jefferson Davis's birthday in Louisiana and Tennessee. History of Memorial Day Red Poppies. In 1915, inspired by the poem In Flanders Field, Moyna Michael, if I'm saying that right, replied with her own poem quote, We cherish too the poppy red that grows on fields where valor led. It seems to signal to the skies. That blood of heroes never dies. She then conceived of an idea to wear red poppies on Memorial Day in honor of those who died serving the nation during war. She was the first to wear one and sold poppies to her friends and co workers with the money going to benefit servicemen in need. Later, a Madame Guerin from France was visiting the United States and learned of this new custom started by Miss Michael. When she returned to France, she made artificial red poppies to raise money for war orphan children and widowed women. This tradition spread to other countries. In 1921, the Franco-American Children's League sold poppies nationally to benefit war orphans of France and Belgium. The League disbanded a year later, and Madame Guerin approached the VFW for help. Shortly before Memorial Day in 1922, the VFW became the first veterans organization to nationally sell poppies. Two years later, their Buddy Poppy program was selling artificial poppies made by disabled veterans. In 1948, the U.S. Post Office honored Miss Michael for her role in founding the National Poppy Movement by issuing a red three-cent postage stamp with her likeness on it. Memorial Day history couldn't be complete without the birth of the National Monument of Remembrance, which was a resolution passed in December 2000, which asks that at 3 p.m. local time for all Americans to voluntarily and informally observe in their own way a moment of remembrance and respect, pausing from whatever they are doing for a moment of silence or listening to taps, unquote. So just in review here. In the description below, I'm actually going to link two things. I'm going to link America's Frontline Doctors website again, if anybody's interested in checking that out. I highly recommend it. Again, there's hydroxychloroquine there, there's ivermectin, azithromycin. You can check all of that out, and it'll be at your front doorstep within seven days. Um, there's that. And then the second thing, Something I came across earlier this week that I thought you might enjoy, if you haven't seen it already, is actor-comedian Tim Allen gave a commencement speech at Hillsdale College. And it's about 44 minutes long. It's on YouTube. I'll link that YouTube link. It's absolutely hilarious. He tells great stories, um, very educational, and totally worth it. So other than that, go ahead and check those out, and have a great Memorial Day weekend, and I'll catch you next week.